Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 25th of July, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Vanessa Beely and uh, David Scott, uh, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border. OK, let's uh, get straight on with the Tory leadership and Liz Truss, because it looks like she's likely to win, increasingly so. Uh, the uh, Well, everybody seems to want her to be prime minister for some reason. I, I don't really understand it, but there you go. The Telegraph headline, Liz Truss, I'm the insurgent candidate in the Tory leadership campaign. And she's wearing purple, and the colour of kings. So yeah. she's there as the top runner, obviously. So she's bound to win. Uh, she is positioning herself uh, according, well, to many uh, as being a hawkish, a uh, warmonger. Effectively, she's criticising Rishi Sunak as being a dove. We'll come on to that in a second. But I just wanted to pick the quote out of this. If we just put it back on screen for a second. Uh, here it is. Uh, she says, I see myself as an insurgent because I want to change things, she said. Uh, and the article says it's an eye-catching word choice. Uh, so is Mr. Sunak the establishment candidate? And so it goes on. Um, we'll come. We'll get some comment from Vanessa and David in a second. But uh, uh, Nadine Dorries then wrote to uh, Liz's uh, defence if she needs it or support. Let's say Liz Truss will be travelling the country wearing her earrings, which cost circa four pounds fifty from Claire Accessories. Uh, meanwhile, Rushi visits Teesside in Prada shoes worth four hundred and fifty quid. Uh, and sported £3,500 worth of bespoke suit as he prepared for crunch leadership vote. Uh, so we can see the uh, quality of the debate uh, in continues to increase on a daily basis. Uh, and getting back to the uh, uh, Telegraph here, this was the headline, Liz Trust to accuse Rishi Sunak of being soft on Russia and, Russia and China. Um, and uh, so she, uh, as we suggested on Friday's programme, positioning herself to be uh, the war president, if you want to call it that. Um, but uh, Guido Fox very upset about her taking this position or criticism of uh, Rishi. Uh, Guido Fox saying on Twitter, I'm confident that neither Trust nor Sunak will be soft on China or Russia. It's not a charge. Senior ministers, the government of a nation that is a permanent member of the UN Security Council should be throwing around lightly. Our allies and our enemies are watching, says Guido Fox. Uh, so, David, uh, come to you first. Uh, what are your thoughts on this uh, uh, pantomime? Well, it's very strange because most most of Liz Truss's comments are, are sort of closely um, arrayed uh, cliches, right? So that's how she's operating. It's all very surface. There was references being made to sort of Maybot Mark II uh, during the debates, and that's pretty much how she was coming across. Uh, there may be more to her, but it wasn't certainly showing there. Um, and then we've got this this strange insurgent. Insurgent's a strange line. I mean, what does Westminster need insurgent? Maybe maybe detergent is more what it needs these days. Um, she's talking about a bonfire of the Quangos. I think we've heard that one before, and it didn't happen. Um, so she's trying to portray herself as the next Thatcher. Um, Thatcher had a Falklands. Liz has already got a war already already ongoing. And she's been involved, so she's got that side to show herself as as the leader of the nation. Um, and then there'll be, if it's like Thatcher, lots of talk about a smaller state as the state gets larger. Um, is that what we're looking at? No change? I suspect it is. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. Vanessa, let's uh, bring you on now, uh, because the, I find the term, the use of the term insurgent quite offensive, actually. Uh, now, you're in Syria, where... There, it's a continuing continuing insurgency, as we're about to see in one second. Um, mm. The prospective prime minister shouldn't be using words like this. No, it's disgusting. I mean, Britain has been responsible for funding terrorism inside Syria uh, and terrorist auxiliaries in the shape of the White Helmets and various other organizations um, linked to them uh, for the last 11 years. So for her to, to call herself an insurgent is, is an insult to the damage that the UK has done to the Syrian people, uh, not least of all uh, yesterday, which we'll talk about shortly. But I have to say also, she's looking very Clinton-esque uh, in the purple dress with, with the new haircut. Um, but she certainly doesn't have anywhere near the brains of Clinton or of Thatcher, for that matter. So, I mean, it's a terrifying prospect. 
yes, indeed it is. Okay, well, let's come on to events yesterday in Syria. Uh, we've got a little bit of video here. Can you just give us a brief mm. introduction to this? Yeah, well, I mean, basically, after the uh, Tehran summit, the trilateral meeting between Putin, Erdogan, and Raisi, uh, the terrorists, almost two days after, declared a new campaign against the Syrian government to remove the Syrian government. And this weekend, in the Syrian Christian, Orthodox Christian, important to say that because of the link to Russia, um, they had planned the opening ceremony for the replica church of Hagia Sophia, of course, in 2020, July 2020, Erdogan requisitioned what was effectively a church and a museum full of Christian icons. He requisitioned it as a mosque in an attempt to win over the favor of his Muslim Brotherhood voters uh, in Turkey, and he effectively mothballed most of the Christian relics in the church and turned it into a, a, an acting mosque. So in response to that, the Syrian Christians in Skadbir in 2020 started to build a replica Hagia Sophia, and not only as a, as a response to Erdogan and his attempts to basically wipe Christianity from the Middle East, a la Ottoman Empire, but also to provide a place of worship for the civilians in the town and also in honor of the martyrs, both Russian uh, and Syrian, and of course uh, various other allies in Syria. So this was effectively a ceremony to, um, to, to bless the church by a huge number of faith leaders, both from Muslim communities, both Shia and Sunni, uh, Christian communities, Catholic and Orthodox. You know, this is Syria. This is the bringing together of all uh, sects and religions in coexistence. So they all came for the ceremony. More than 1,000 people were present. Uh, on this particular day, and of course Sunday is the day of worship for the Christians in Syria, uh, and this was um, the consecration of holy ground, uh, and this is what happened when the uh, Turkish-backed terrorists decided that they do not comply with any kind of uh, religious freedom, and of course uh, in response to, as I said, the pressure from Iran and uh, Russia, for Syria to the Syrian government to take back control of territory and the Syrian Arab army to be allowed into that territory. Um, this was part of their campaign. So the first video shows uh, it was a suicide drone, so a drone packed with explosives, and it targeted the ceremony, as you'll see in the video. The video was, it's not me filming, I'm actually about four meters to the right of the explosion itself, and I'll explain how we were saved from um, the blast. Um, so the next video is just a compilation of um, photographs and video from the event. You'll see again here the attack. As I said, this was a suicide drone, so it's a drone that's packed with explosives that can zero in even on mobile GPS, so it can be used um, to assassinate individuals. This was, unfortunately, the site of the um, murder of a Syrian Arab army soldier who, with his body, actually shielded us from the blast. The statue and the soldier, Hisham Elias, who was killed, uh, I saw his body being taken away from, from the site. He and the statue shielded us. Where you see the statue, we were sitting directly behind it. So this statue, which is in honor of the martyrs in Syria, you can see here all of the chairs scattered. There were more than 1,000 people, the majority of whom were civilians, children, teenagers from the local choir, the local band, and they had packed uh, the kind of ready-made auditorium and lined the streets. There were two drones that actually fell on this day, one that you saw, and another, thank God, didn't explode, but it fell behind the buildings in the area where the cars had been parked. One soldier was injured. There are seven more were injured in this explosion. And one soldier, as they took uh, the force of the blast, he's on the right of the statue there, 
Hisham Elias, really a hero because, uh, sorry, these are also two of the children that were injured uh, in the blast, not seriously, thank God, and they've now been allowed out. The statue, what it says on there is a Syrian Arab army inscription, uh, homeland, honor, and sincerity. And I really have to say that that statue on this day saved our lives. That and Hisham Elias, because as I say, they took the force of the blast. If the missile had landed two meters further in, it would have been a massacre. I was sitting next to the ambassador of Hungary, the ambassadors of Abkhazia. There were also the ambassador of Russia. There were a number who were speaking when the explosion happened was one of the sheikhs from Al-Kauf, the religious institution in Syria, so Sunni Muslim, who had come to share in the consecration of the church. But there were a huge number of faith leaders, diplomats, parliamentarians, um, high level and, and influential people, not only military. The, the, the military were a minority and they weren't there um, in anger, so to speak. They were there to, to share in this uh, honoring of the martyrs from all the allies that have fought against terrorism inside Syria. And this is what the terrorists did on a Sunday. Um, and we have to assume that it's Turkey giving them the technology to manufacture these drones. We saw in one of the last programs Russia targeting, if you remember, the underground drone factory belonging to Jolani, to the HTS, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham or al-Qaeda. So it is without doubt Turkey that is giving them the technology. It could also be NATO experts that are enabling them or helping them on the ground to build these weapons. So it's a whole new form of warfare starting inside Syria. And now the defenses in both towns are going to have to be reinforced to deal with it. Okay, well, thank you very much for that report, Vanessa. Uh, just uh, very quickly, um, mm. I haven't seen any report on this in the Western press. Huh. Uh, and no, you've got to ask, where's the moral outrage? Yeah, exactly. And the thing is that the terrorists immediately put out um, a bulletin saying it was the Syrian Arab army. Oh, no, then it was the Iranians that are targeting their own people in order to start a war with the terrorists. Um, I don't know if, I, I'm pretty certain, at least in Sweden, that mainstream picked up this story and ran with it. So if we see anything, it will be the version that the terrorists want the Western media to publish, not what really happened. Yes. Uh, Vanessa, if, if I can just add, as you were talking, and uh, how horrific that incident was, but of course, ultimately, it's one of very many that's taken place in Syria. What came into my mind, it was the fact that the BBC's own charity, BBC Media Action, was operating in Syria all those years ago, openly boasting yeah. that they were helping to foment unrest within Syria. And of course, look what's unfolded. And at the same time, we've got the same charity, BBC Media Action, working in exactly the same way in Ukraine. So are we going to see honest reports from the BBC? Well, we can't because, of course, they would be revealing what their own dirty hand has been, has been doing. It's obscene, really. Yes. Well, yeah, thank you. OK, sorry. Um, well, if we're going to uh, move on, what better place to go than a video clip of, uh, of Boris, because of course the uh, Prime Minister has not disappeared from the scene yet, but over the weekend, great excitement as, as this and other film clips were circulating. Let's have a look at this clip. I just want you to know that the people of the United Kingdom support the people of Ukraine and support you in your fight. And I am absolutely convinced that you can win and that you will win. Thank you very much. Jakuyo and Slava Ukraini. So once our friend forces in position, we're then going to move forward. I'll get you a grenade for the angle over here. Just don't go and Great. That went well. Total success. 
I've been meeting some of the 400 Ukrainian troops who are here uh, being, being trained by... Well, I'll throw that out for some uh, comments, uh, David. I don't know what you, you, you think. Vanessa, you've got a hand up. We'll come to you in just a second. But um, here's Boris Johnson. What, what is this? It's a propaganda piece for Zelensky's Ukrainian regime. But the worst of it all is that uh, the British Army is training, it says, 10,000 Ukrainians uh, every four months. Um, what's going to happen to the people that the British Army trains? They are going to go back to Ukraine and they are going to die on the front line in those numbers. So the, the whole process at the moment is we've got UK having fermented yet another war in Ukraine. And now we're training troops who are receiving minimal training, in fact, and they will be sent straight to the front line where they will die. David. Well, uh, where do you start? Uh, the the soldiers doing the training there were all were all Scots. The Scottish part of the army has uh, been in decline for many years, getting smaller and smaller. And some of the oldest, in fact, the oldest regiments in the British Army no longer exist now, rolled into the Rangers. And the um, physical size of the defence estate in Scotland has dropped by sixty percent in two years as the land is sold off. So the Scottish soldiers are busy training Ukrainians, but we're not training Scots. We're not training an internal um, uh, British army to defend Britain. We're training um, other armies for foreign wars. Um, and what's driving that? What's the, what's the agenda? And none of it makes any sense. There's no call for peace. There was no call for an end to the bombardment of the Donbass, which had been going on for years. Um, and there seems to be an assumption that what this is going to now play out in is an assault, uh, an offensive in the autumn in the south of Ukraine towards Crimea. Um, and this is apparently going to go well and we're going to drive back the Russians and there won't be an escalation. This seems fanciful. Um, so there doesn't seem to be any strategic thought here much at all. And what has been done in its place, which is arming people and, and training them um, in absence of strategic thought, is simply going to generate more uh, avoidable and needless death. Uh, couldn't agree more. Vanessa? Well, I mean, I just find it extraordinary that people in this country are not up in arms about the fact that the government and the army are training potential uh, Nazi-linked, fascist-linked forces on on our territory, on UK territory. I mean, this isn't what we fought the Second World War for. I mean, I, mean, it's, I, I don't know. It's just like the world has just turned upside down. You know, Britain is funding terrorism inside Syria. Now it's training Nazi auxiliaries in, in Britain. Yes. And you, you have you, the former prime minister there having fun with them. I mean, it's just, I, I don't know. I, do, I just... It's, well, it's, Boris Johnson... I'm speechless. Yeah. This is the key problem, isn't it, Vanessa, that things have become so bizarre it is difficult to comment. Boris Johnson there, I think, was back at school playing with the army cadets, is how he saw it. That was his demeanour. Well, well, that's right. But on the other hand, I don't know how long he was there for. He's probably getting as much training as many of the others, so he should go over there himself. Uh, well, uh, I, I couldn't agree more I mean, with uh, that, Mike. Send him over there. Send him to Ukraine and Liz Truss can go as well. She can fight on the front lines and she can do what she says everybody else should be doing, send them to Ukraine. But of course, the Western media is now in a complete uh, hole because it doesn't know what to report. This is just a sort of very rough excerpt of the sorts of stuff that you'll see if you go for looking, looking for news on Ukraine. Uh, so we've got Ukrainian troops fire mortar, fire mortar shells at Russian targets. Uh, Ukraine war strikes on Odessa. Of course, they're very upset that the Russians have said, well, we're not going to stop the war. We've agreed to grain, but that doesn't mean to say we can't hit military targets in Odessa. Um, Ukrainians use kamikaze drone 
on a nuclear plant. Now, what would the headline be if that was uh, the Russians? Mm. Of course, we'd have something completely different. And then the, this is what you were getting at, David. We're constantly hearing that Ukrainians are pushing forward when the reality is that they're not. Uh, Ukraine is not winning and the Western media is getting nowhere by saying that they are. Ukraine is losing ground, albeit at the moment at a very small pace as the Russians are clearly taking a pause and regrouping. But the number of men dying on the front, Ukrainian men dying on the front, has increased dramatically. And this has even been admitted by Zelensky and his military team. There is no million man Ukrainian army. This is very clear. And it's also clear that the HIMARS and the M777 howitzers are not making any difference at all. And of course, they wouldn't because they're not on the battlefield in sufficient numbers. So we're going to recommend that if you want detail on what's happening in, in Ukraine, have a look at the many good sites reporting. This is the update map from Defence Politics Asia. Uh, this particular channel, I think, gives very balanced overview of the front. Um, but essentially, the front is alternating between uh, shelling and actions across the length of the front, whether it's in the Donbass or down to the southwest to, towards Mikhailov. And occasionally we're going into very quiet days. So at the moment, it's clear that the West doesn't know what's happening. Uh, but in trying to explain what's happening, we're bringing in ever more uh, qualified or unqualified people to comment. Uh, so let's have a look at a very short video clip um, of Nigel Inkster, former MI6 uh, head. Let's hear what he has to say to uh, the Times radio. Russia's uh, strategic aims extend now beyond the territory in uh, the Donbass region. Um, and I suspect that Vladimir Putin's own uh, aspirations remain uh, the occupation of um, the entirety of Ukraine and basically to the, treat Ukraine broadly in the same way that Adolf Hitler planned to do. The head of the CIA has said this week that Russia's experience in Ukraine is affecting China's calculations on how and when it may decide to invade Taiwan. Well, Nigel Inkster is the former director of operations and intelligence at MI6 and is now director of transnational threats and political risk at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Um, good afternoon to you, Nigel. Good afternoon. Um, really good to speak to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, we were talking a little earlier on the programme to uh, one of Ukraine's ministers saying that they're still planning to press ahead with preparations to release these millions of tonnes of grain that have been blockaded in Ukraine's southern ports. But of course, that missile strike on Odessa um, really um, increases the questions about whether Russia will stick to its mm. side of the bargain. Um, why do you think President Putin has agreed to this deal to release the grain? Well, I'm no expert on Ukraine or Russia, but it seems to me pretty clear that uh, Vladimir Putin is concerned not to unnecessarily antagonize important countries in the Middle East and Africa um, that um, see the supply of Ukrainian grain as, as vital. He doesn't want to be cast as a villain um, in, in terms of uh, starving or putting at risk uh, large populations in the developing world. So I think it really boils down to that. Uh, well, it goes on to say a number of other things, but no doubt, uh, Vanessa, you'll have picked up on the fact that he's equating the Russians to the Nazis. That comes in very quickly. And then they're talking about a blockade of the ports. Well, the ports haven't been blockaded. They've been mined. And it was the Uranian, uh, the Ukrainians that mined those ports. And so the deal is that the Ukrainians remove the mines in order for the grain to be moved. But uh, I don't think the Times is going to be discussing that. So really, that clip was a classic because it was a man who said quite clearly he was not qualified to be talking about Russia. But he's brought in as an expert. But clearly, he doesn't know very much. So this is this is how it is now. Yes. Well, just to end this uh, segment on Ukraine, uh, let's bring this up. This is from TASS, but it's been reported in other uh, Russian media. 
Uh, Russian investigators identify over 220 people involved in the shelling of Donbass. So this is uh, part of the tit-for-tat uh, claim of war crimes and the charges of war crimes. So they're saying, TASS is saying here that Moscow has charged 89, uh, sorry, 92 members of the Ukrainian armed forces with crimes against humanity. Uh, this is uh, Alexander uh, Batstrykin. Uh, he told government news site uh, uh, one of the government news sites, over 1,300 criminal investigations had begun, uh, and he's suggesting that uh, an international tribunal backed up by uh, various countries, including Iran, Syria, and Bolivia, uh, would uh, be looking into these. Uh, of course, Ukraine is also uh, carrying out the same kind of war crimes investigations and making this, you know, their claims about what Russia is doing. But Brian, it seems to me that uh, if you've got a war going on, people are going to die. Uh, and uh, this seems to be the sort of politicization of that. And if you're going to uh, head down that road, that's not going to end up uh, being anywhere terribly positive. Maybe they should consider negotiations. Well, there should instantly be calls for the war to stop. It's uh, negotiations that create peace, not weapons, which is what Britain and the US in particular are pouring into Ukraine. So unless uh, our politicians start calling for the peace that will give Ukraine a chance of at least saving some of the country, uh, I think it's not looking good for the Zelensky regime. Yes, okay, well, let's uh, bring this on screen uh, because uh, the Commonwealth Games are being militarized somewhat. Uh, the government announced on Saturday uh, that a thousand armed forces personnel will be part of this, taking part in this year's British Commonwealth Games in Birmingham. Uh, and. Uh, uh, they're going to be doing everything from supporting security operations to competing in the events. Are they going to compete in the events in their fatigues? I'm not entirely sure, but this is clearly a massive uh, attempt to uh, sort of normalize uh, the military uh, being involved in civilian uh, or, um, situations. Um, and so the opening ceremony takes place on Thursday this week. Uh, this starts the notes, uh, sorry, marks the start of the uh, Commonwealth Games and the military. Just put that up on screen again there for a second. Uh, uh, then, you know, this is all about the, the long-term planning for the delivery of the games. The, they're setting up what they're calling a, a, a uh, venue assistance force uh, made up of armed forces personnel, uh, and uh, they will assist West Midlands police and also the security staff at the site. Um, and, uh, well, what do we say? Well, this is, again, this is indicative of the state of the military. It's taken the People newspaper over the weekend, couldn't bring it into today's news, but we will cover it before the end of the week, uh, where the People is saying, well, hang on a minute, we're talking about war, more war with Russia, but actually we're cutting the army yet again. So it takes a newspaper, the quality of the people, to highlight that uh, Britain's army is getting smaller because more cuts are, are actually happening as we speak. And yet we can put a thousand troops to playing around with a, with a mascot for games. Yes. Um, this, is, this is organized madness, of course. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on. David, uh, news from Canada. Yeah, so um, we're, we're looking here at the case of uh, Pastor Arthur Lowski. Um, he generated one of the one of the most memorable moments in the the struggle against the COVID lockdown and restrictions and the uh, the invasion of all aspects of our lives by the state uh, when uh, a group of Canadian police invaded his church during a service during Passover. And he uh, shared his thoughts with them. And just to remind you, we have a little clip. Please get out. Get out of this property. Immediately get out. Get out of this property immediately. Out. I don't want to hear anything. Out of this property immediately. I don't want to hear a word. Out. Out. Out of this property. Immediately until you come back with a warrant. Out. Out! 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 Out of this property! Immediately out! Immediately go out and don't come back. Don't, I don't want to talk to you. Not a word. Out of this property. Out of this property. Immediately out. I don't care what you have to say. Out! Out! Out of this property, you Nazis! Out! Out! 
Gestapo is not allowed here. Immediately, Gestapo is not allowed. Out! Do you understand English? Get out of this property. Go. So go. Go. And don't come back without a warrant. Out, Nazi. Out. Out. You understand? Nazis are not welcome here. Out. And don't come back without a warrant. Do not come back without a warrant. You understand that? You're not welcome here. Nazis are not welcome here. So that was magnificent. And of course, for that, he got arrested. In fact, uh, he was arrested uh, a total of, I think, 16 times. He was jailed on five separate occasions. Uh, we've got a little bit of the backstory to that here just to run through. Uh, this uh, slide here uh, from the CBC News says anti-mask activist, as though that's just what it was about. Anti-mask activist ordered by Calgary judge to preach science too. This is one of the most creepy Orwellian and downright Soviet things that, that uh, came out of Canada during this period. Uh, so Christopher Scott, Arthur and David Polowski uh, were found guilty of contempt in June. Calgary-based street pastor, his brother, and an anti-mask cafe owner um, had been fined, put on probation, and ordered by a judge that they must also preach science if they continue to rail against the COVID-19 public health rules. Quote, they are on the wrong side of science, end quote, said the Queen's Bench judge, Adam Germain. Quote, they are also on the wrong side of common sense. Um, so as part of the uh, conditions, uh, the pro uh, probation conditions, Germain ruled that if the three pandemic-denying anti-mask leaders, you don't know, just love the CBC's language here, continued to preach to their followers, preach, by the way, they must also present the perspective of medical experts. Scott and the Polowskis, quote, have contributed to this ominous health situation, said Jermaine, and encouraged others to doubt the legitimacy of the pandemic, end quote. Uh, attempts by AHS inspectors sent to the church were met with abusive language. No, they were met with accurate language, CBC. The Polowski brothers turned the arrest into a spectacle, said Jermaine, adding it was one... Uh, it was clear during sentencing submissions that Arthur issued a taunt to the court hoping for more jail time. Uh, it, is it is not an unreasonable observation that the Polowskis reveled in their arrest and went out of the way to make the arrest on Saturday Night News uh, the spectacle that it became, said Germain. He has a fervent desire that I martyr him, he said of Arthur. So this is bizarre language from the judge all the way through the line, and it continues... Uh, if the three men continue to preach to their followers, they must also place the other side of the argument on record, the judge said. He then suggested wording like, I am aware that the views I am express expressing to you may not be held by medical experts. The majority of medical experts favour social distancing and vaccine programmes. So he was specifying to the pastor what he had to preach to his congregation, and he had to preach the state view. I mean, how, how creepy and Orwellian and totalitarian is that? Well, fairly. I was... <laughs> yeah. Well... So go ahead. It, it, got, it got worse. It got worse. Um, it, he, he was then... You know, he was jailed multiple times. He ended up spending two months in solitary, nearly two months in solitary. Um, I, and this was uh, allegedly for... A mischief while addressing a crowd of the Freedom Convoy. Um, and uh, we'll go back to the, C the CBC again. Uh, and this is the bail conditions he got when he finally got out of that um, two months jail um, um, time. Um, the, the, initially, the judge denied Polowski release on February the 9th this year. But the but the court, the Queen's Bench, uh, granted him to uh, granted him bail after the review. He was required to pay twenty five thousand dollars in bail, and there was also to be a ten thousand dollar surety from his wife. That's quite creepy in Orwellian. They're getting into your family to use family pressure to prevent you uh, breaking the conditions, and an additional two thousand dollars from his son. He was under a seven p.m. to seven a.m. curfew, except when he was attending church services. So again, just a phenomenal restriction on all aspects of his freedom. 
And what he did is he opened his church. That's all he did. Um, and when he was in jail, it got even worse because the, the, the treatment there was horrendous. All the people who were supporting him from his church and from across Canada went down and were, were protesting outside the jail every single day he was in. So the response of the authorities to that um, was, uh, well, mistreatment, as it's reported here by Fox News. Uh, the protests gathered daily for more than 40 days outside the jail, uh, and this prompted the prison administration to punish the other inmates on his behalf by placing them all uh, on lockdown. I don't know how you would know during that period if you were in lockdown or not. Uh, he, uh, and Arthur said, they are punishing the entire prison because of me. Um, and then they paraded me in front of the inmates saying, that's the guy. You're being punished because of him. If you have a chance to do something, that's the villain. That's the guy. He said, I think this was the scariest time. I was told by inmates, and they're willing to testify, that they were approached by different people from within the administration and the guards bribing them with different incentives to beat me up. Recounting, he was recounting how his cell door would be left open at times, which terrified him. He's, however, he found favor with his fellow inmates. Uh, many of them sought him out for spiritual support after recognizing him as a pastor who keeps getting arrested. His unit, which consisted of approximately 20 other men, began to assemble for Bible study with him. Several, he says, converted to Christianity. Shortly before his release on bail, Polanski was transferred to the Edmonton Remand Centre, largest prison in Canada. He was placed in the psychiatric ward where he shared a cell with a paranoid schizophrenic who told him he'd killed his own brother with a machete. So, gentlemen, do you get the nature of how the state is, has been treating this man, of the dirty tricks? It's not enough to simply misuse the law. No, we've got to have dirty tricks on top of that. Um, as, as extra punishment and to try and get uh, unofficial beatings as part of your jail sentence. And David, and you're speaking of Canada here, but of course we, we know from many different cases that these sorts of techniques are used on people inside British prisons. So there's a common and international theme with this type of, uh, well, it's violence ultimately. But uh, this is not restricted to Canada because this this sort of thing has been going on inside Britain's prisons for a very long time. So um, uh, the the uh, Polowskis and Chris Scott got legal uh, representation, uh, partly from public funding, partly generated by the uh, re rebel news media. So not non-mainstream news telling the story. Um, and uh, this went to the Appeals Court of Alberta. And a few days ago, they had a huge win. Uh, we have here uh, the tweet from the lawyer. It's a slam dunk win. The Court of Appeal made a unanimous sound decision overturning the finding of contempt against my client. And you see here are some extracts from the findings. Polosky's appeal is allowed. Uh, the finding of contempt and the sanction order are set aside. The fines. Uh, have been that have been paid for uh, paid by them are to be reimbursed. Uh, the uh, award of costs uh, is set aside, costs against them is set aside, and the Polowskis are awarded their costs um, uh, payable in the same fashion. So they won everything. They got costs, they got everything. So it was a fantastic and a huge win. And we have a little clip of Arthur uh, Polowski talking about it. I mean, what they have done to me, my brother David, so many arrests, solitary confinements, sleeping on concrete, like the arrest after the Germain or the uh, John Rooks order and David Gates. Um, we spent three days and two nights on concrete. I don't know if, if people can comprehend what I'm saying, but that's no fun. And especially the, the, there's no fun in this if you are innocent, if you have done nothing wrong. What did I do, Adam? Mm -hmm. I just did what is a definition of my job. I'm a pastor. I opened the church. Well, I incited people to come to the church. That's what I do. I want people to come to the church. If you're hurting, if you're needy, if you're suicidal, if you're depressed, if you're hooked on drugs or alcohol, come. We'll pray for you. We will show you another way and take it or leave it it's your choice 
So uh, we've got some more information on the court finding uh, from a site here, justiceforpoland.com. Uh, they comment that the, the original order that was placed on him uh, allowed the police to arrest, detain and imprison anyone who disobeyed. However, the order was intended to be directed at Christopher Scott, the cafe owner, uh, and was orig originally worded in such a way that it could, in theory, uh, apply to every Albertan. And then the court focused on this aspect of it and concluded that where there is ambiguity in a phrase that purports to identify a group of individuals uh, to whom ex parte injunction applies, the injunction may not be sufficiently clear to be found contempt to or clear to found contempt proceedings against such individuals for breaching the terms of the order. And they continued, uh, as all elements of contempt must be established beyond reasonable doubt, we conclude that the injunction was not sufficiently clear and unambiguous when it referred to other parties acting independently to like effect, uh, so as to apply to the Polowskis. The contempt finding in the, against the Polowskis must therefore be set aside. And we've got a final comment here uh, from Arthur Polowski um, from an interview again by Rebel Media News. Put it this way, the germane thing was the foundation to forward the tyranny on, on me personally and others. Now they've lost that foundation. So here's what I'm hoping is going to do, that they're going to just let us live our lives free and they would start to respect our fundamentally guaranteed rights, our constitution and the criminal code of Canada. And our constitution, our charter rights and freedom starts with a preamble that states that whereas Canada acknowledges the supremacy of God, leave the pastors alone, leave the clergymen alone, leave the Christians alone. This country was built on Judeo-Christian values, the supremacy of God and the rule of law. We're not criminals. Those that did this to us are the criminals. And I hope one day we will be able to go after the real villains and, uh, and charge them for the crimes that they have committed. Yeah, yeah powerful stuff. Yes, yeah, very good. Okay, now if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, uh, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, or you can pick something up from the UK column shop. Uh, but in any case, do uh, share any material on various platforms if you could. Well, uh, what a good introduction, Mike, because can we share material on platforms? It's becoming increasingly difficult to do it. Uh, this is a little bit of a step back in time, but it's something which I thought was important to stress to the UK column audience, because unless people in this country stand up for free speech, it is going to disappear increasingly quickly. So let's hop into my personal YouTube account. It's here where you can see some of the videos that we've produced listed. Uh, but this is the one that should catch your eye because I missed this for quite a while. It's a video that has been removed by uh, YouTube. Uh, what was the video? Well, it was a particular person in Cornwall trained as a psychotherapist working with children's and, children and families. And that individual was warning of the damage being done to children by the use of masks and lockdown. So that was a professional giving their professional opinion on the damage to children, to school children, uh, from the COVID uh, policies enacted. And what has subsequently happened? Well, um, YouTube saw fit to remove that video. If you follow through the sequence, you get a, a line like this, let's get started look at your content, check your content, you might have made a mistake. Uh, and if you follow through that, you eventually came up with this uh, particular piece of information that apparently this particular psychotherapist warning about the dangers to children is a COVID-19 medical misinformation, uh, a breach, sorry, of COVID-19 medical misinformation policy as far as YouTube's concerned. And it says uh, here that, uh, the safety of our creators and viewers and partners is the highest priority. It says YouTube doesn't allow content about COVID-19 that poses a serious risk of egregious harm. YouTube doesn't allow content that spreads medical misinformation that, uh, quote, contradicts local health authorities or the World Health Organization's medical information about COVID-19. This is limited to, con uh, to content that contradicts WHO or local uh, authorities' guidance on treatment 
prevention and diagnosis. So you cannot, um, you cannot say something which contradicts apparently a local health authority, and you cannot put something which contradicts the World Health Organization. Uh, just to emphasize the point, I thought we should have a look at the definition of egregious, uh, conspicuously or outrageously bad or reprehensible. So that was a professional speaking out. Uh, but of course, it wasn't YouTube that has uh, taken this video down. We've got to come to Susan uh, Wozicki herself. And uh, this is an article, one of many about the great lady, where she's saying that she was five months pregnant. She had a house, but they needed to rent out one of the rooms. And by an amazing coincidence, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, creators of the uh, search engine for Google, became tenants. And it wasn't long because, uh, after that, of course, that this lady was becoming the 16th person to be employed by Google. Uh, so what does she go on to say? Um, uh, in 2005, she saw another video company called YouTube, which was showing incredible growth with a tagline of broadcast yourself. People all over the world were uploading, uploading amazing videos to YouTube that would never end up on traditional media. I realized there were entirely new genres of content and formats that had never existed before. And so she worked on hoovering up YouTube to draw it into the Google empire. And uh, where does that take us? Well, all of a sudden in this particular quote, she said that she discovered a lady called Claire Wineland who started a YouTube channel out of her bedroom in San Diego to cope with the complications of living with cystic fibrosis. Claire saw the way sick people are represented in our society, and she wanted to say something different. Remarkable, Mike, that uh, she's on the back of this. Claire's work is fantastic, but anybody stands up to talk about uh, what it's like to be sick or what it's like to receive inappropriate medical treatment, Susan doesn't want to know. So what really goes on in her brain? Well, I think it's uh, got to be something like this. It's great for sick people to tell my YouTube audience how sick they are, but they mustn't think I'm going to let them discuss why they're sick. I'm also not going to let experienced, qualified healthcare professionals question the who's, the who's health priorities and guidance, even when the World Health Organization is proven dangerously wrong. So, um, she thinks this, I think, Mike, but of course she's not going to say this because then the truth comes out. She goes on to say that she's still got to focus on millions of creators able to connect with their audiences and build thriving businesses. So now we're getting more to the heart of it. They don't want to know the truth. It's about the businesses. And uh, she says that she's proud that YouTube is a place where people can come every, uh, every day to learn whether it's how to compete in javelin, how to sew a quilt, or how to learn nuclear physics. Um, but uh, she doesn't want anything to do with health. Mm. So pretty vile stuff. And uh, let's remind the audience that uh, YouTube also took down this UK column report. Well, that was the UK column report that got us kicked off YouTube in entirety. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> totally deplatformed for this one tell the truth about medical matters on YouTube and you're going to be taken away. Now, we'd like to say that uh, we've just put up a new video, uh, which YouTube won't be taking down. It's here. It's a very poignant interview about individuals that have suffered very bad adverse reactions to COVID um, vaccinations. And uh, recommend people to have a listen to this and you'll find it on the front page of the UK column today. I'll just have an eye on the uh, clock. But David, you've got some comments. I'm, I'm just wondering how much truth, how, how much truth does YouTube want to actually exclude? Because it, that, that video that was taken down, you're talking to a psychologist, you're talking to someone who's, who's expert in human reactions to the lockdown. A lot of these are measurable, right? The, the, um, delayed childhood speech development because the children can't see faces and they learn by lip reading and watching how lips move and they're not seeing the lips move. This is measurable. You can go to the experts who are treating these problems and the problems have gone up by three, four hundred percent since the lockdown. 
So presumably you can't say that on YouTube. You can't talk about your vaccine injury on YouTube. I mean, eventually you get to the point where no truth can speak, it's, can, can be spoken at all. And you have this bizarre view that the single source, source of truth is the World Health Organization. And that's, that's Big Brother-esque again. Uh, but it's clearly untrue that the World Health Organization is certainly not the, uh, uh, the root of all medical truth. It's incredible what is happening and the only way we can deal with it is to expose it. Let's get uh, Susan, the chief executive of uh, YouTube, let's get her into material online and let's question her about what she's really doing uh, because uh, this is censorship which is damaging children, it's damaging people's health. Um, well, let's uh, come to the World Health Organization then. And over the weekend, uh, well, an announcement was made. Let's have a listen. We have an outbreak that has spread around the world rapidly through new modes of transmission about which we understand too little and which meets the criteria in the international health regulations. For all of these reasons, I have decided that the global monkeypox outbreak represents a public health emergency of international concern. I have made a set of recommendations for four groups of countries. First, those that have not yet reported a case of monkeypox or have not reported a case for more than 21 days. Second, those with recently imported cases of monkeypox and that are experiencing human-to-human -human transmission. This includes recommendations to implement a coordinated response to stop transmission and protect vulnerable groups, to engage and protect affected communities, to intensify surveillance and public health measures, to strengthen clinical management and infection prevention and control in hospitals and clinics, to accelerate research into the use of vaccines, therapeutics, and other tools, and recommendations on international travel. The third group of countries is those with transmission of monkeypox between animals and humans. And the fourth is countries with manufacturing capacity for diagnostics, vaccines, and therapeutics. So uh, pretty clear that what is going on there, and we'll, we'll watch this very carefully to see how this develops. But in the meantime, we have, while they're implementing all this digitization, all the surveillance, uh, all the travel restrictions and so on, uh, we've got a collapsing health services around the world and not least in the UK. So let's uh, bring this on screen. Uh, this is the uh, Health and Social Care Committee, Jeremy Hunt's committee. Uh, and they commissioned uh, 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 an expert panel to look at the situation with respect to employment uh, in the NHS. And here's the expert panel's report, uh, which is rating government's overall progress as inadequate on key workforce commitments in the NHS. Let's see what they say. Uh, experts find no evidence that targets for staff numbers were linked with patient and service need uh, and so on. Uh, they said that uh, government unable to give a breakdown of spending on social care to demonstrate how the extra one billion pounds committed annually was spent on additional staff, additional care staff, better infrastructure, technology and facilities. Uh, but of course, they've got to focus on well-being and mental health and so on. So let's look at the report itself. They're saying uh, the recommendations that the, the governor, they're saying that the government needs to increase the number of students in medical training. Uh, they need 50,000 more nurses. They want... They say there's a 12,000 shortfall in doctors, but they need uh, 6,000 more doctors in general practice, uh, 26,000 more primary, primary care professionals, 7,500 extra nursing associates. And uh, they also want to address the uh, issue with doctors' pensions uh, because that's uh, causing some doctors to not be willing to take on uh, all the shifts that are available to them. But anyway, here's Jeremy Hunt. Uh, persistent understaffing on the NHS poses a serious risk to staff and patient safety, a situation compounded by the absence of a long-term plan by the government to tackle it. Uh, well, there's nothing really to say there, but uh, clearly uh, this is a policy issue once again. Uh, and as we've been reporting several times over the last couple of weeks, this is resulting in excess mortality. Uh, yet the mainstream press doesn't seem to want to uh, discuss that very much. Well, they don't want to discuss it because clearly there's some form of, of media clampdown on reporting the facts around 
health and the NHS. But the reality is that the NHS is destroyed. It's been destroyed from the inside. And that has been consistent government policy across all of the parties. Um, so it certainly isn't a conservative, just a conservative policy. Labour was uh, continuing the game as well. And now we've got the wreck of the NHS and people are going to die in increasing numbers if they engage with it. So this is deliberate breakdown of the nation state, exactly the same as what's happening to the army or the armed forces. They are being destroyed from the inside. Yes. Now let's uh, move on to this. I'm very keen to get David's thoughts on this. This is quite an incredible article. It's in La Verita in uh, Italy. Uh, and this is Professor Richard Lindzen on screen here. He's a former professor of meteorology at MIT. He's got a degree in physics from Harvard. And he was the lead author of the 2001 report of the International, or sorry, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, and uh, let's just uh, quickly translate this headline. Uh, the UN climate numbers are often adjusted to create panic on purpose. Uh, and underneath there, now hold on, hold on, just hold on, David. Uh, and underneath there, uh, let's just bring this up. The media amplified, simplified data extrapolated from a huge amount of data. Uh, this gives governments great power, especially in the energy field. So what's he saying? He's saying IPCC opinions are largely the product of government members of that committee and are not the product of its scientific component. Uh, the latter has a minor role in drafting the summaries that are then distributed to the media and to politicians. He said that the idea that CO2 is the leverage of controlling the climate system, a highly complex system, is almost absurd. And he said that independently from what one believes on climate behavior, there is no basis to consider the CO2 increase as an existential threat. However, if a political movement succeeds in convincing the people that we're facing an existential threat, they hope to achieve unlimited power, including power uh, in the crucial energy sector. This power allows uh, a few individuals to make a lot of money, creating many difficulties for the common people. So, David, that is what uh, one of the authors of the 2001 uh, IPCC report had to say a couple of days ago in the Italian press. I didn't see that mentioned by the BBC. And the truth shall set you free. Yes. That was magnificent. And it's, and it's exactly what the sceptics have been saying for years, that this is a politically-led programme, that the, 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 the scientists have little or nothing to do with the final summary for policymakers, and that the whole thing basically is a scam, and the idea that CO2 is uh, this hugely dangerous um, uh, bogeyman that will wipe us all out is ludicrous. Um, I think that's wonderful. That really is wonderful. We need to be shouting uh, from the rooftops about that. That's, that's the game. Yes. Okay. So where does that take right. us? Oh, yes. I, I'm silent, Mike, because it, it surely is becoming so obvious to people now that the real danger to our lives is coming from these global and international organizations who seem to be now wielding power over nation states, apart from Russia and China, who've backed out of control from the, well, certainly Russia has from the World Health Organization. But uh, we can see the reality. Yes, indeed. Uh, so let's end, David, then with, uh, with Scotland. Well, this is pretendy ref. And before we go into this, I just want to show you, gentlemen, I'm not making this up. So here we have uh, Michael Glacken in the Sunday Times um, talking about pretendy ref. And he's saying, so it's official, Scotland is now twinned with Craggy Island amid, amid a shrinking economy, a collapsed health service, Police work to rule, cost of living crisis, failing education system, exacerbating inequalities, and a, a couple, he was writing a few a few weeks ago, a couple of political sex and fraud scandals, the number's gone up since then. Uh, the SNP solution is to go full Father Ted and ask, is there anything to be said for saying another mass? So this is, this is just repeating the same pointless incantations as the point he's making. So... Here we see Hollywood magazine here is reporting on the IndyRef2 plan which Sturgeon announced a few weeks ago. So what she's going to do is the Lord Advocate is going to take a bill before it goes before Parliament um, to the Supreme Court to ask whether it's legal. And if the Supreme Court say yes, 
then Sturgeon's planning to hold a referendum on the 19th of October 2023, uh, an achievable date. And if they say no, then she's going to say that the next um, general election will be a kind of stand-in, um, pretend referendum on the future of the country. It will be a referendum because she says so. So that's the plan, okay? Now, you might be wondering why it's a bill and not an act, because it's not gone through Parliament. Well, there's a reason for that. We'll come to that in a minute. But very briefly before we do, um, here we've got another article in the Sunday Times. Um, it, it's pointing out each of the referendum paths that Sturgeon sets out is a dead end, and she knows it. Section 30 order from the Scottish, from the United Kingdom government, no. Court ruling that Holyrood can legislate in an area which is out with its competence, no. And then the next general election being a referendum on independence, if the SNP wins more than half the seats, Scotland will be independent, really? General elections are not referendums and the SNP doesn't get to make them so. So you're saying that apart from maybe the situation if the SNP doesn't get 50% of the popular vote, it, it might suddenly discover that after all it was a decision to stay in the UK. Um, and he points out that when asked, 75% of Scottish voters would, would prefer a better Scotland in a better Britain over independence. An amen to that. So why didn't it go through the Parliament first and then the bill became an act and then that went to, uh, that went to the, the United Kingdom Supreme Court? Well, the Lord Advocate, who's appointed by Nicola Sturgeon and is the highest law officer in Scotland and sits in the Nicola Sturgeon cabinet, doesn't think that it's legal. She doesn't think that it's legal and won't allow the bill to go forward because she doesn't think it's legal. So she's asking the Supreme Court if they think it's legal because she doesn't think, the Lord Advocate doesn't think it's legal. Uh, he was the Scotland's top law officer, does does not have the necessary degree of confidence that voting independence from the UK can be held. She doesn't think it's legal. So that, that was all a bit embarrassing. It, it gets worse, okay? So the, the Nicola Sturgeon decided we're going to have a whole series of, of books written about independence. And we're going to produce them once every two weeks. This is the same way that uh, when, when uh, an Austrian chap was, was, was forging the Hitler diaries, he was handing them over to the, the, the Sunday Times one every two weeks because that's how long it took him to write them. Um, so Nicola started the same thing. So the Scottish government officials were busily writing these documents and the first one came out and it was a bit of a nothing burger and the second one came out and it was even worse. Uh, and then they've kind of given up till the, till, till the autumn. So here you see her holding the first document, which is all about why Scotland should be independent and basically comprised... Uh, comparing Britain to other European countries, not comparing Scotland to them, because if you did, it, this story was completely reversed. It wasn't very good. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately for Nicola, um, the cover of that, uh, which showed a wind farm, wasn't in Scotland. That was Yorkshire. That was uh, a, a Facebook wind farm near Bridlington on the coast of Yorkshire. So the first document they produced trumpeting the reasons for Scottish independence, didn't actually manage to get a photograph of Scotland on the cover. And you think, well, can it really get any more embarrassing? Uh, yes, it can. So, um, so we've now got uh, the Scottish government um, are going to make this proposal to uh, the U United Kingdom Supreme Court. Their pitch is the reason that it's legal for them to put this bill through is, it's, is that the bill itself is not legally relevant. That's the argument, right? And, and you're thinking, what? But that's the argument. So uh, 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 Miss Bain, the Lord Advocate, uh, argues the limited legal practical effect of the bill to hold an advisory referendum can be said to support the view that the purpose of such an instrument is to ascertain the views of the people of Scotland uh, that relates to the union only and it relates to the union only in an indirect or consequential way. The motivations and wider ambitions of the Scottish government represent subjective intention, not equated with the purpose of the bill. So it's an opinion poll. That's all that, that is, that's, that's what they're trying to say it is. That's their position. And now the SNP want a separate, they want as a party to go in front of the Supreme Court and argue something else. It's completely uh, horrendous. Now, 
whilst this is happening, what's actually happening on the ground? You mentioned uh, you mentioned the NHS a moment again a moment ago there, Mike. Uh, we have here from this week five wards left with a single nurse at crisis hit Queen Elizabeth University Hospital. So this is the Showpiece Hospital, the largest hospital in Glasgow, um, and they uh, they had to put out they had to write to staff asking them to continue to support the nurse teams where possible, check in more frequently in the following wards who will only have one registered nurse tonight. So that's what's going on. And a few people are noticing the issue. So here we see from the Press and Journal, John Ferry, an opinion piece. And he says that the popularity of the SNP has led many to view the union as being in crisis. In truth, the liberal democracy globally is in crisis. And this is, this is exactly the correct understanding of what's happening here. The people in Scotland would rather there's a better Scotland than a better Britain. But there's no prospect of that coming, certainly not from, from Holyrood and certainly not from Westminster. So the, the dissatisfaction with Westminster is, is fueling a certain amount of support for, uh, for separation that doesn't really reflect anything other than dissatisfaction with the system. But the problems of Westminster are even more apparent in Holyrood and they're apparent all across the Western world. And that is the problem in Scotland, not simply the SNP. Yes, indeed. Okay, thank you for that, David. Uh, well, we have one uh, final slide then. Yes, I thought uh, as we've been talking about Arthur Podolsky and we've been talking about um, uh, events uh, held by the Orthodox Church in uh, Syria, it would be a good one to end here. Uh, an, an ancient painting of St. George testing a dragon for COVID circa 250 AD, and uh, we all remember those days well. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, good one. Well, that's uh, brought a smile to the studio. So thank you very much for that, David. Um, turbulent times. I'm, I'm going to add my last couple of pennyworth and say that, that the breakdown of our democracies in the Western world could only be happening, could only be achieved with the power of the media on a global basis and a national basis. And of course, what we are up against as ordinary citizens is massive propaganda skewing the way we see uh, life and uh, what, what we believe. And so I believe the start of fighting back against this is to absolutely take the media to task for the sheer propaganda and lies which it is putting out. Indeed. So maybe we need Sir George to come in and help us on that, but we'll leave that for another time. Um, some extra in a few minutes. Indeed. Thank you for joining us. And thank you to everyone who's supporting the UK column. We'll also say thank you very much to the person who sent us a box containing some very uh, delicious treats. But this is something we have to say very gently. We have to watch our figures. <laughs> so let's leave Sorry. it there. Okay. A bit late for some Thanks of us. for joining us. Bye bye. Bye bye.